BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's Friday, September 20th, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at climatedesk.org, and you can follow us on Twitter at Inquiring Show. That's Inquiring Show. And on Facebook at slash Inquiring Minds Podcast. And this is, the, this is our first episode in this new platform. Let us just introduce ourselves for a minute. I'm Indre Viscontis. I'm a neuroscientist and an opera singer, and I'm particularly interested in bringing science to the public. Uh, yeah, and who am I? I'm Chris Mooney, and I'm a journalist and author who writes about science and society, and I'm a contributing writer at Mother Jones and Climate Desk, which is sponsoring this podcast. This week on the show, we have an amazing interview with a friend of mine who is a former American astronaut, and she's been to space five times. Yep, that's right. Five times, more than almost anyone else in the history of humanity. Chris, I'm going to tell you a little bit more about her in a minute. But first, I think it's important for us to go over some of the headlines and some of the important um, issues that are going on this week in, so that we can, we can explore that place where science and society collide. That special special place where we live, right? So uh, I'm I'm so glad, Andre, that we find ourselves back on the air. I want to pick your brain about an article I did. It's one of my most viral in a while. It first was at Mother Jones, now it's at Grist. Then people have done versions of it. It's at Salon. It's at Huffington Post. It's alternate and everywhere. People are talking about it. Um, and I guess readers might want to Google it just so they know what we're talking about. They, if you just Google. Politics wrecks your ability to do math. I assure you, you will find this. And so let me let me give a little background, then you can tell me what you think. So uh, there's this uh, researcher, Dan Kahan at Yale, and he does all these cool political psychology studies. And the new one is one where he basically sets up a tricky math problem. And the problem doesn't change. The math of the problem doesn't change. But what the problem describes changes. So sometimes it's, you know, find out whether... Uh, this this new skin cream works based on these experimental results. And sometimes it's find out whether a ban on carrying concealed weapons works based on these experimental results. And to make a long story short, people always tend to get the math wrong, but really mathematically skilled Democrats and Republicans get it right in the skin cream scenario. When they get it wrong in the gun scenario, when the outcome goes against their politics, but they get it right if the outcome goes for their politics. So they're better at the skin cream scenario than the gun scenario. And anyway, this is showing that your political ideology, your political predilections mess up even your ability to do math. What do you think? What do you make of this? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, saying do math in general is is a pretty strong statement. This really is about being able to understand probabilities, which we are notoriously bad at. Uh, It's something Mm -hmm. that is very difficult. And most people don't really understand the nature of probabilities. It takes some training in statistics and a lot of thought to not get caught up um, in some of the traps that probability reasoning can put us in. Um, So first off, I think that, you know, it probably doesn't apply to simple math like arithmetic or or other other things. But um, let's let's take it from the probability standpoint. The other thing that I noticed, too, if you look at the raw data, Mm -hmm. um, it seems that, you know, yes, you have this big polarization when you have this highly politicized story that, you know, the gun control issue. 
Um, but when you look at how well people do on the skin treatment, there's much less variability. So it looks like people are just better in general um, when there isn't this kind of political view. The political mm -hmm. view really does seem to skew people's ability to rationalize. Um, and mm -hmm. in some ways, that's really in line with this notion that we all suffer from the confirmation bias, right? Which is, we tend to look for evidence that confirms our beliefs rather than disconfirms our beliefs. Um, mm -hmm. it's, a, it's, a, it's a natural product of cognition. And so, of course, here you see that effect very strongly. Mm -hmm. And one thing that's driving people, I think, nuts about this and leading to all these dirges about the end of the Enlightenment, which I'm also partly guilty of, is that, it, again, it's the smarter people who's, uh, who let their politics skew their ability to solve this tricky problem more. The, the people who, and they measure how smart you are by basically a test of your numeracy or your mathematical reasoning. So if you're not good at math, you don't get the problem right most of the time anyway. But if you are good at math, you get it right when it's not politicized. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I still think yeah. that, you know, you have you have um, more variability in the case in which it's politicized. So mm -hmm. even if you're good at math, you know, people tend to sort of have the same range of responses in the skin treatment version versus the, the gun ban version. And yes, you're you're definitely more wrong <laughs> um, <laughs> if and but there you know that the effect is not is not massive. It's 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 significant and it's there and I don't want to diminish it. But on the other yeah. hand, you know, I also think that um, if you are a person that, you know, has a tool in your toolbox that you can use to confirm your hypothesis, then you're going to use that tool. And so yeah. in this case, people who are sort of understanding this probability and they feel pretty confident that they're able to understand this probability, um, in some ways, it makes sense for them to say, you know, to use to use that tool uh, to really back up their own beliefs so and that's I, that's what scares people here and, and so let's just uh, back out of this and, and get the big i mean takeaway do you think that this this really you know dooms politics i mean you know you remember there was during the election uh, there were two versions of what the polling data said about who was going to win the election and it's hard not to think about that and of course one side turned out to be right and one side turned out to be wrong but people were clearly reading the math differently during the election so i mean maybe yeah, I mean, I think it's true. I think I think probabilities are notoriously difficult, and I think mm -hmm. that they we should be extra cautious when we're trying to interpret probabilities and use them to back up our beliefs. Uh, this mm -hmm. study absolutely underscores that. On the other hand, it doesn't mean that just you know it, that intellectualism or education or intelligence, no matter how you measure it. Um, is going to affect you uh, or, or not affect you in terms of the way that you understand your, your, your beliefs. I don't think it's true to say, you know, the smarter people were more affected by this. I think it's true to say the people who really were quite good at understanding probabilities tended to use that tool to back up their beliefs more strongly than the people who right. didn't really understand probabilities possibly in the first place because they were making more errors. Yeah. And I mean, we've got, you know, a big new round of the climate change debate coming up, and I can only assume that people are going to be using their abilities selectively there, too. So stay tuned. This is human nature. Absolutely. So I, there are also a couple of things in the news yeah. this week that I wanted yeah. to touch upon. Um, there are things that sort of are, are close to my heart, uh, mm -hmm. although they're definitely controversial, and that is the yeah. debate about the effects of playing football on your brain. Um, right. You know, in the last year in particular, uh, the studies that have shown it's not just the number of concussions, but rather the number of hits that seem to um, correlate with future brain injury. Uh, you know, these studies have been coming out and out. And of course, just a couple of weeks ago, there was this settlement uh, that the NFL had in which, you know, they, they settled with some, some 4,500 plaintiffs. Huge amount of money, yeah. Huge amount of money. Not a huge amount of money for the NFL, huge amount of money right. for anybody else. <laughs> it's almost it's 765 million. Yeah, yeah. And yet in, in the same settlement, you know, unlike the tobacco settlements in which, you know, eventually the tobacco companies were forced to say, okay, there is no such thing as a safe cigarette. It seems from my reading of, of the literature on the settlement that the NFL kind of got away scot-free without having to say, you know, there's an inherent danger in playing football. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know if that's the end of uh, everything. I don't because I don't know the legal issues, but I do know that there are actually I've been reading about this. There are NFL concussion deniers. So mm -hmm. people who say football is not so dangerous, you just need to man up, you know, but I I, I think the evidence is 
is mounting that it's a dangerous game uh, yeah i think i think there's yeah. i mean i think there's no um I, I think you'd be hard pressed to say that it, yeah. there isn't this danger. Now, on the other mm -hmm. hand, hockey is also dangerous. Um, you know, yeah. skiing is dangerous, right? Alpine ski mm -hmm. racing. I used to ski race when I was mm -hmm. in high school and, you know, my parents let me, even though it's possible that I could have hit a tree and died. You know, there are lots of things that we do as kids that are dangerous. Um, so mm -hmm. the question is, you know, should we, sh should football be any different? Is it okay just to put a caveat on, on it? Or should we really try to, you know, limit the number of hits and really fundamentally change the way the game is played? I don't know. I mean, I think at least consciousness raising is a very good thing. You know, I was a high school football player. I actually caught two passes from Peyton Manning at Isidore Newman High School in New Orleans. Wow. So, yeah. Um, and uh, we were so, okay, this is 1995, you know, 94, 93. We were so unaware of this, that this kind of discussion that we're having now could happen. I mean, I do remember one scary bad tackle where a running back, not me, you know, got hit with his head down and he didn't get up fast. And we were like, we were all, our jaws were wide open on the sideline. And then, I mean, I don't remember what happened, but then he did get up and it was okay. But the, but we were all, ter we were all terrified for like a matter of seconds. But I don't remember generally being conscious the way people are conscious now. So that at least is a yeah, good Yeah, I mean, I think, I think we really didn't know that it's not just the big hits. I mean, I, it, you know, it's, it makes sense, the big mm -hmm. concussions, that's scary. You know, you see someone come down and, and not get up. Everybody knows something wrong has happened. But right. more and more studies have come out showing that it's actually the little hits that, you know, really are mm -hmm. just as nefarious in a lot of ways. So, for example, I was reading about this Cleveland Clinic study that just came out yeah. this year in which... They're looking for biomarkers. So they're looking for um, sort of things that they can measure in either the blood or, or some other part of your body that can indicate extent of injury. And so they found this one protein called S100B, which is a marker for traumatic brain injury. Essentially, it indicates that there's some damage to what we call the blood-brain barrier. There's a barrier mm. between, you know, your, your regular bloodstream in your body and your brain so that toxins, you know, don't go straight up into your brain and mess with brain function. I mean, mm -hmm. it turns out that, you know, once this this particular antibody is in the bloodstream, um, the immune system begins to attack it like or, or sorry, it begins to this once the protein is in the bloodstream, the immune system creates an antibody for it and begins to attack it um, and that these antibodies can then cross it, the blood brain barrier and they are associated with, um, you know, terrible things like epilepsy and dementia. Mm -hmm. So they did find elevated, um, you know, biomarkers for this protein or these antibodies in, in people who are getting just minor hits who are not concussed. They actually took oh. out um, the people who had concussions um, while playing football. I believe it was college football in oh. this case. Um, and anyway, so, so it, it, you know, certainly there is some damage that can happen um, just by getting hit in football that can lead to long-term effects on your brain. I mean, I think, you know, football is probably one place in which we can see this most readily, but we probably see it in a lot of other sports and, and uh, yeah. you know, like... Well, boxing. Uh, oh, boxing you know. for sure. <laughs> yeah, There's I no mean. question. But, you know, <laughs> right. I, th I also think that in some ways yeah. the culture around boxing has changed, right? When we people saw yeah. what happened to Muhammad Ali... Mm -hmm. I, you know, it seems like that it correlated with a decrease in an interest in 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 boxing. And now I think people really do need to make that same decision about football um, ethically. Again, here we are talking about how science can help us inform the decisions right. that we make in society. I mean, here science is saying, look, football is dangerous. It has these long term effects. Um, so right. how does that you know, people should at least take that into consideration when they make a decision about whether or not they should support football or let their kids play football. Totally, this and it's going to be a hard decision, right? There's this op-ed uh, that you sent me by mm -hmm. the longtime linebacker, Scott Fujita, and he he's basically saying he believes the science. He believes that football is dangerous. And then he goes back and he tries to relive his life from an almost counterfactual perspective and says, well, would I, does that mean I would not have played if I'd known that? And he says, no, I still would have, I still would have played. I'm still glad I played. Yeah, and uh, I thought it so was it's a struggle. Yeah. And, you yeah. know, it's really interesting how his parents had different views, right? His mom was saying, no, I wouldn't have let you play when, right. eight, eight, when you were eight. And his dad would have, you know, sort of had a, had a moment of thinking about it and said, 
I, I probably would have asked you to start later, but yeah, I would have let you play. And so it's an interesting thing to think about, about, you know, <laughs> your, own, your own kids. You know, I don't have any kids, but if I had kids and, you know, my son or my daughter really wanted to play football or some other sport that I knew could lead to long-term consequences, I, you know, I think in, in our household, probably, I don't, I don't watch football because I find this, this ethical dilemma difficult. Um, and so I don't support it. So they wouldn't get exposed to it. But at the same time, you know, if they had friends who were really loved it and every day, you know, they came home and said, hey, you know, mom, I want to play. Uh, yeah, it would be really hard to keep saying no uh, year after year mm-hmm. after year just because something might happen in the future. So I don't, I don't know personally whether my brain has been affected by being hit and I was certainly hit a lot, but I do know I wouldn't play football now, but just for this reason that I would be better at soccer now if I hadn't been playing both sports. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, luckily yeah. my husband's a big baseball fan. There's not a yeah, lot of. So. I mean, there's a lot of ankle injuries and shoulder problems, but <laughs> the brains seem right. to be intact. Right. Cool. Okay. Well, so we have a show today. Tell us. Tell us more about the guest. So I first met Marsha Ivins at a dinner party a few years ago, and she was the first person I'd ever met. And I think since I can stay safely say she still remains the only person I've ever met who has been to space. She is a former American astronaut, and she's an extremely impressive woman. Um, She's she's obviously very, very smart. uh, But she also has this kind of joie de vivre that I always gravitated towards and a wonderment that for me embodies exactly what science is all about. It's a curiosity and a discovery about the world that we live in, and in in her case, about the world outside of, of the Earth. And uh, so she used to tell me these amazing stories of of, of being in space. And after, um, you know, we, we've sort of become uh, friends over the last few years, and I, I slowly realized that she's actually one of the most space-traveled uh, people in the world. You know, there are only about wow. 540 people that have been to space at this point. And she's been there five times <laughs> for a total of 55 days, which puts her in a really small pool. I think there are probably fewer than 20 people ever in the history of humanity that we know of. Yeah, uh, they'll like, live longer to too because of it, right? Yeah, so um, I really wanted to talk to her about what does she think, you know, what's going on in terms of NASA now? What, we've, what, what I've seen is that there's been every year less and less money from the um, you know, federal budget going to support NASA. There's a lot of controversy now about what, whether NASA should really, what place, what role it should play um, in, a, in a society in which money is an issue. So I wanted to hear what Marsha had to say about those topics, but also to just get a better sense of, you know, what is it like to be in space? I mean, so few people have had that experience. Sounds great. Let's go to that interview. Marsha Ivins, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you. It's an absolute pleasure for us to have you on our show, in part because not only that you've been to space uh, so many times, but there's something really unique about your experience, and that is that you've done so many different things in space. Um, from what I read, there's only eight people who have done more missions than you have, and so that's really remarkable. Well, gee, you, you know more than I do. <laughs> I didn't actually know that number because I really haven't paid any attention to it, but um, Okay. <laughs> yeah, so apparently there's only about 540 people that have ever been to space. So you're already in a small enough number. Um, but of those, most people go up once or twice and certainly not five times. So I wanted to start the conversation by asking you to tell us a little bit about the five different journeys and, and what your roles were on each of the different um, shuttle missions. I was very fortunate to be flying the space shuttle at a period of time in its history where we were flying maybe eight times a year, six to eight times a year, which is how I ended up able to fly five different missions. Um, My first mission in 1990 uh, was early in the shuttle program. We rescued and returned to Earth an experiment about the size of a bus that had been put in orbit six years earlier to study the effect of extended duration in space on different kinds of materials, which is important to know if you're going to build things to last a long time in space. It had been intended to be retrieved by a space shuttle mission much earlier, but the Challenger accident took us out of flying for three years. And so 
we were we were a little late in picking it up. Anyway, we deployed a satellite. We we rendezvoused with and retrieved this thing and brought it home, and that was kind of cool. The second flight in 1992 was the first uh, demonstration of a tether. A tethered flight demonstrated a pr- uh, principle of physics that says if you move a conducting material like a wire through a magnetic field like the Earth's magnetic field at a high speed and we are orbiting at 17,500 miles per hour, you will generate electricity. So this is an Italian-built um, spacecraft, little spacecraft at the end of essentially 20 miles of telephone line, um, insulated telephone line that we would reel out when we got to space and this little ball satellite would would be extended on the string, basically. It's like taking a ball on a string and, and swinging it around your head as you let the line out, the ball continues to get farther away from you. And it didn't exactly work according to plan. Instead of getting 20 miles out, which is how much string there was, we got 800 feet and it stopped and had a jam. And we did the thing that, that NASA does best. We figured out real time how to solve a problem that was not anticipated. We got it returned and we brought it home. And then it flew again a number of flights later uh, on a different flight. My third mission in 1994 was a materials experiment in a large pallet that was in the cargo bay of the shuttle. Uh, that was my longest flight, 14 days. We basically turned it on, and 14 days later, we turned it off, and it did its study of materials in the absence of gravity. So we are the operators, really not the experimenters. And then we did a number of experiments inside the shuttle. The fifth, fourth flight, uh, which got more interesting, was the fifth mission to the Mir space station, which was the Russian space station that was in orbit prior to the international space station that we have now. We delivered cargo to the uh, station, and we delivered a crew member. We brought another crew member home. So that was kind of cool to actually be on a space station that had been there for 12 years already. And my last mission in 2001 was one of the early assembly flights to the International Space Station, where we brought the Destiny Laboratory module which is carried up in the cargo bay, as were all parts of the space station. And my job was to use the robot arm to take this big laboratory out of the cargo bay and attach it to the space station. And I wouldn't be a good Canadian if I didn't point out that that's the Canadian arm, right? It is the Canadian arm that we carried on the shuttle, and it is a Canadian arm that is on board space station now. Yes, we're, we're very proud of that arm as Canadians. <laughs> <laughs> so that's quite quite a number of journeys that are also very different. And so what exactly is, is your role always the same when you were going up on those missions or did it change from mission to mission? It changed a little bit. Shuttle astronauts were hired essentially in two flavors. There were the pilots who, who provided the commander and the pilot function, and they were hired as um, from a, a pool of very experienced military uh, fighter pilots, guys that had thousands of hours in high-performance jet aircraft because the shuttle lands like a pretty difficult glider at the end of its mission. And so those guys were hired, and, and gals, there were two of them, were hired for their ability to, to fly high-performance um, experimental kinds of jets. The other flavor was the mission specialist, which is where I was um, placed, and we were the engineers, the scientists, and the ones that did the, the experiments and the work, the science work, did the spacewalks, and so they were sort of divided. So I was never going to fly the space shuttle. I was never going to be a pilot or a commander, but I was the flight engineer on three of the flights, and so I was the one sitting on the flight deck that would assist the commander and the pilot with the ascent and the entry portions of the mission. I was trained on a number of flights to use the robot arm, uh, and on all of my flights, I was the photography person. It was my job to manage the film and the camera, and we did fly film for almost all of those flights. Now we're all digital. 
it was my job to manage the film and the camera and the lenses and to know how they worked and to make sure everybody else knew how they worked and to make sure that the mission got documented with both still cameras and video cameras. I was also on the last two flights, the loadmaster. And that is the person that is responsible for making sure that the thousands of pounds of equipment and hardware and food and supplies and things that we are taking to those space stations and the equal amount of stuff that we are bringing home all gets transferred correctly, goes into the right place, gets gets restowed on the shuttle in the right center of gravity, sort of like a loadmaster in a, in a big airplane. So I had similar jobs on many of the flights, but because each mission is different, you are trained specifically for that mission. So the experiments I worked on each mission were a little bit different. Mm-hmm. But you also, you obviously have the capability to fly. I believe that's a requirement for an astronaut. Is that true? Did you? It is not true. Oh, okay. um, I have, no, I've been a civilian pilot basically since I was 15. I, I actually learned to fly before I learned to drive. Um, but that is not usual for all mission specialists. Many of them are civilian pilots. A number of them are also military pilots. Um, but not all of them were pilots. We were trained flying in the back seat as a mission specialist of the T-38, the, the jet trainer that we used as a space flight readiness trainer, they called it. It's a, a high-performance uh, Air Force training jet that we used to develop the skill of, of working as together as a crew in sort of a high-stress environment, which is high-altitude, high-speed flying. But I was one of the few that actually had that much civilian flying time as a mission specialist. Hmm. And so if the pilots on the space shuttle, I mean, it must be so different to fly at, you know, outside of or, you know, into the orbit compared to all the experience that they had, um, you know, just flying around the earth. So how do you, is there, a, I mean, I know that there's, there's training that you can do in NASA, but certainly there's also an element of um, learning on the job when you're actually in the flight. You know, I think Hollywood has has given everybody an an image of what flying in space is really like, because we see the starfighters, the sort of jet-looking, pointy-nosed, kind of things that are flying around, shooting things and making shooting noises, and that's not the way it works in orbit. Um, flying in in orbit, orbital mechanics is different than it is in atmosphere. So something like the Borg cube is equally capable of maneuvering as something that looks like a starfighter from, from a science fiction movie. In space, they're one and the same. Um, and the skills of flying, the roll, pitch, yaw kind of skills of, of stick and rudder flying that we are used to, on the on the Earth, you don't need those particular skills in order to fly in orbit. And in fact, all the flying in orbit, most of the flying, is done by the computer. So you don't really put your hand on the stick um, to fly, except for the last part of a rendezvous and docking. So the close-in um, proximity operations, they call it proxops, where you're coming close to docking with another vehicle, that is done by hand, but it isn't the kind of flying that they do in a normal airplane. So thousands, literally thousands of hours of training go into developing the skill set for the, the pilots that will fly, and, and really anybody can do that. It, it doesn't require thousands of hours of high-performance jet time in order to fly in space. What it did require was to land the orbiter at the end of the mission. Hmm. And so what are the unique challenges of, of that kind of docking? Well, we're both traveling at 17,500 miles per hour. Um, unlike speed on the Earth, where you're used to wind noise and the, and the feeling of going fast because things are rushing by you, you, you really have no sensation of motion when you are in orbit going that fast, except for the fact that the Earth is moving underneath of you at five miles per second. You know, so it would take 15 mm-hmm. minutes for me to get from, from you to Adam, probably. <laughs> um, the challenges are learning to do things smoothly and slowly, both in flying and in your maneuvering of your own body when you're in, when you're in orbit. On the Earth, 
when we want to go faster, we move faster, we drive faster, we run faster in, in space. When you're going to want to go fast, you actually have to slow down in order to give exactly the right input to do what you want. So you would make an input in order to move your spacecraft and you wait to see how it is changed relative to the thing you're talking to. And you do that very slowly because whatever energy you put into your, your motion, you have to then take out again so you don't run into it. So the simulators train you to do that, not with motion so much as with uh, visual cues and instrumentation. Yeah, that certainly aligns with my perception of what it's like in space, especially now that we've had these great videos from Commander Hadfield um, sort of showing this Zen-like state where everything seems to happen much more slowly and much more gracefully. Um, it must be such a massive switch to your senses to you know, really have to slow things down like that. Um, but do you think that there would be a time when we would start to adapt to that kind of sensory stimulation and be able to speed up? Or is that just a constant feature of being at zero gravity? It's, um, number one, not so graceful until you get the hang of it. <laughs> and, um, and you do adapt to it. On a 10-day or a 14-day mission like we had on the space shuttle, you feel like you have adapted, but you really haven't. And you notice that when you get on board the space station, and here's the crew who has been there for four months or five months. They are really good. They actually can move a whole lot faster than we can because they have learned just how much energy you need in order to get from point A to point B. And, and that takes a, a couple months, really, to, to learn to do that. And then they, they can, in fact, move faster. Hmm. So I wanted to talk a little bit about what it's like to be on the space station or in the shuttle at zero G for a prolonged period of time, um, there must be a lot of changes to your health uh, that happen since it's such a different environment. There really is no change to your health. Um, we launch healthy. So they have quarantined us for a week or so before we fly so that we are not exposed to things like colds and, and things like that. And, and people are not launching with known illnesses or, or known failing body parts, essentially. Um, and so once you are in orbit, there is really no reason to make you sick. You can't catch a cold if no one on orbit has a cold. Hmm. You know, you have to be exposed to that. And short of something like an appendicitis, uh, you're, you don't get sick. Hmm. So the biggest change is basically to your neurovestibular system. And I know you understand that, but for people that might not, that's your balance system. The thing that allows you to walk straight ahead without falling over, to turn your head very quickly and not fall over. In, inside your inner ear is essentially a three-axis three gyro system. And I tell people that you can demonstrate this to yourself by standing without touching anything with your eyes closed and just wait. And your body will tilt eventually in one direction or the other. And in your inner ear, it, if it's not compromised in any way, will sense that and correct you. And your body will, will not fall over. That's a gravity-dependent system. It's, it's why when you spin somebody on the ground really fast, they get dizzy. When you can spin all day long in space and never get dizzy, which is, which is pretty mm. cool, actually, because there is no gravity to stimulate the inner ear. So while your body is essentially getting used to having a vestibular input that is different than your visual one, here on the Earth, we're used to up being what's above our head for the most part. And in space, without any gravity, up is whichever way you decide it you want it to be, whichever way your head is pointed. So if you look at people inside of a space station, somebody could be working equally well 180 degrees out from the way you are working, and, and you're fine with that. Well, it takes a little while to get used to the fact that the visual cue that you're seeing is okay. It's, it's not in, in conflict at all with any vestibular input that you get. So a lot of people quite a high percentage of them feel uncomfortable for the first few days while their brain is kind of sorting out that. And then you're fine. 
Hmm. So, but you don't actually feel dizzy. I mean, I, I would imagine that that would make me feel very dizzy. It's a, it's a sort of psychological discomfort rather than... Um, right, right, huh. right. And you get over that. It's like the people that can wear one contact lens that sees far and one that sees near. Your brain sorts it out. Right. You've, you've also, in a previous conversation with me, talked a little bit about some of the cognitive changes that happen up in space. Um, I think at one point you called it space stupid. <laughs> can you tell me a little bit about that? Well, I, you know, I don't want to wax on and on about that. Um, it, it, it seems when you get into gravity, you, you sort of have, and, and not everybody has it. I had it, um, and I will admit that. And I know a number of other people that have had it. Sort of takes a little longer to get your brain in gear. So a procedure that you've trained for on the ground and that you got very efficient at doing on the ground, which is why you train it so often on the ground, you get into space and you look at it and think, I'm not quite sure I know where to start. Hmm. And that's what all the training does. You simply start. And then and once you get into it, it, it sort of clicks into place and you get going. But it just it's like thickness without feeling foggy sort of takes takes a little bit of effort. And it may be the newness of being without gravity and also the the kid in you thinking, you know, I really would rather play and, and not do my work. Again, you sort of have to drag yourself back to doing the task at hand rather than floating around and, and giggling about it. That's certainly the, the, one of the public perceptions now, I think, of, of a sense of humor that permeates uh, astronauts and their interactions with NASA, um, especially now that uh, Commander Hatfield has, has become such a personality. Um, and that always amazed me that there's a real, real childlike sense of wonder when astronauts go up there. I mean, it, it makes a lot of sense. Um, but it must be terribly distracting not to just think at every moment, oh, my God, I'm in space. Well, you do, you do have in the back of your mind that I'm not in Kansas anymore, Toto kind of feeling, because this is not something that is normal. It's not something that is normal. I think 100 years ago, 50 years ago, people that got in an airplane, it was not normal. And it was a, a huge experience. And today, it's no big deal, even if... If you don't fly, the fact that people fly from point A to point B is not a big deal. The fact that people go into space, that is still a big deal, even to those of us that are part of the program and that have trained for it and that have worked with people who have been into space. You are off the planet. Think about those words. I am off the planet. You don't get to say that. (laughs) And I think 50 years from now, I would hope, 20 years from now, it's not a big deal to be off the planet any more than it is to be at 30,000 feet in an airplane. Hmm. But, but there is still something in our generation of wonder at, I am not on the planet anymore. It's, it's a feeling that I don't know how to describe other than you just have to stop and laugh about it because it, it's, it's not normal. Well, and there's also this sense that um, it's highly anticipated to go on a mission and you have to spend a lot of your time waiting around um, as an astronaut to find out if you're ever going to be on a mission, let alone, you know, actually go on one. It seems to me that that would be one of the most challenging things for people who are so high achieving and, and probably type A personalities, the people who actually make it into the astronaut program. There have been essentially no astronauts um, who have stayed in the program who have not flown. So everybody got to fly. You want to fly now. Hmm. You, don't, you don't want to fly later. That's a function of a type A personality. But it's not that you're waiting around to fly. You are working to support other missions, other programs, other uh, crews as they fly. So everybody has a job. It's when you get assigned to a mission that is yours that you shed those other jobs and you go into training for your flight. So it's not sitting around waiting, it's it's working. So you are part of a mission. And whereas the astronaut is the one that everybody sees, most of the work is done by the people that you don't see. Hmm. The people that have done the training, that have built the hardware, that have integrated all together, that have developed the experiments, that have um, supported, 
reported the crew that have put it all together and that are supporting it real time. So for every mission where somebody is in space, like Chris Cassidy, who has just landed from his six months in space, there is a team, a sizable team of people around the country, around the world, literally, that are supporting his mission and the other crew members. So you're not, you're waiting to fly, but you're not doing nothing. So are you always at every point in time assigned to a particular mission or, or is there times in which, you know, you're sort of a floating astronaut in the sense that you don't have a current mission to which you've been assigned? I mean, right now it seems that there should be a fair amount of astronauts who aren't assigned since, you know, the space shuttle program has been discontinued. Well, there are a considerably fewer number of astronauts than there were when the space shuttle was flying. There are probably less than half of the total astronauts that we had 10 years ago. Um, And most of the time, you are not assigned to a mission. On a space shuttle mission, a crew was assigned a minimum of a year prior to a flight. So anywhere between a year and two years, you train for that mission. The space station guys train for four years. So they get assigned early and they train for a long time. So I I don't know what the number is now. I would guess that probably half of the people in the office are assigned to missions or probably closer to a third are assigned to missions. And so what are the, the biggest challenge to me, it seems, when you're on these long missions, like the people who go to the space station, it seems the isolation would be, you know, really difficult to handle. Was that any something that you ever experienced? It wasn't for me because my longest mission was 14 days. And I, I had no family, basically, on the Earth. So for me, it was a great vacation, in a way. It, it, for me, the, the everyday things that you deal with, did I speak to my mother? Did I, did I unplug the iron? Did I, did I pay my bills? Did I pick up the dry cleaning? You know, the things that you, that just make your daily life, your daily life, there is nothing you can do about them. Your, your friends and and family or whoever is taking care of your, of your business is taking care of your business and there's nothing you can do about it. And so stop worrying about it. So to me, it was a worry free, the, the daily grind of, of living on earth gone. (laughs) <laughs> just like I said, nothing you can do about it. So it was really liberating in a way. And, and you can focus on what you're doing. Now, I can only speak for myself. I, I can't speak for the crew members that have left children on the, on the earth. Um, and I know that, that they miss them and that there is a sense of isolation from them. Um, but you can talk to them every day on Space Station if you want. There are video conferences. There's a phone, an Internet phone, uh, that you can use on board the Space Station. It's pretty cool. You dial 9 for an outside line. You can call <laughs> anywhere in the world. And the crews use that regularly. So you are not so isolated that you have no contact with your friends and family on the Earth. You just have no physical contact with them. Mm-hmm. But you're not alone. There are, there are three crew members on board the space station now. Three have just returned home. But when it's a full crew, it's six people. So it, it's, it's not like you are completely isolated. You're trapped with two other people <laughs> or five other people. And when the space shuttle was flying, you could have a crew of six on board the space station and seven on the shuttle. I mean, that's a crowd. Hmm. In some some ways, maybe the challenge is more getting getting along with people in such tight quarters. And I think that is that is more of the challenge. And I again can't speak to a long duration mission because I have not done one. Uh, but I know the people that have been the most successful at it have been the ones that have decided they are just going to get along. Mm-hmm. So you've also in the past, and I've heard other astronauts say this, considered. That if if there was going to be a, a one way trip to Mars or some other far off planet, um, that that you would consider doing that. I used to say that, <laughs> um, and I would consider it if I thought the odds of actually doing it successfully were good. Um, there there are a number of groups that are proposing that now, and I'm not sure I would be ready to sign up with them. 
So can we talk a little bit about um, the benefits, the pros and cons of space uh, uh, travel with a government organization versus a private um, organization? I mean, it seems like, you know, one of the major challenges, of course, now is is that NASA's budget just keeps getting cut. You know, it, from what I read, and it peaked at about 4% of the federal budget in the 60s. Uh, and now it's down at, at almost an all-time low at less than 0.5%. Um, so this is a problem if people want, you know, if we want to do some major space exploration. Um, but and so there is some people are arguing that, well, it should go towards, you know, private organizations should should do the funding. Why should the public uh, fund this space exploration? What do you think? Well, that's a it's a complicated and, and intricate question and answer. Space exploration, which is in my mind what NASA's mission is, and in my personal mind what I find the inspiring part of a space program is not an immediate payback fiscally or otherwise. It is a generational kind of investment. And the only group that can afford to make that kind of investment is a government. A private organization has a bottom line, a fiscal bottom line below which they can afford to exist. They have to have a a payback a fiscal payback at some point because money just doesn't keep happening. So they get investors, they build hardware, but they, but they need a return on their investment that is not generational. That is more immediate. There is no question that a private company can do it more efficiently than a government by orders of magnitude. There's no question there. A government program overhead it is a large percentage of the amount of money that is spent in the program. It could be more efficient, but governments, we know, are not efficient, particularly when they get into large programs. A small company can be lean and mean and, and efficient, but like I said, they can't afford to invest in a generational kind of payback. They, they need something immediate. So the difficulty becomes in where do you draw the line in how much capability and safety you build into your hardware. You can't build it with no reliability and safety because now you can't deliver a product, and so now you're not going to get paid. You're not going to get your payback for it. So it has to be safe and reliable, but it, it like I said, there is a line below which you, you can't go. So that is always the number one motivator, I think, in a commercial company is the, is the fiscal bottom line. The government, not so much. They, they can afford to put more money into a program if the hardware didn't test the way you had anticipated, if you have discovered uh, problems that need to be redesigned and fixed. It's expensive, and that's why it takes longer but you make those changes and you recover from that and you continue to add money because the payback to the government is not fiscal. The payback to governments who do really big things like space exploration is, is in demonstrating to the world a capability and a leadership capability that other nations want to follow. And that's what happened during the moon program. We spent 4.5% of the fiscal budget, and we went to the moon from having never been to space in nine years. That's astounding. And we did that, and, and the United States was the technological leader of the globe from that point on. Not so much anymore. Mm-hmm. We haven't taken a big step. We haven't met a big challenge. We've been using hardware it's the same hardware we built in the 60s, same technology we built in the 60s. China that is making that step now, they're going to demonstrate that capability to the world. And what is paid back to them will be in support from other countries, both fiscal and, and in, in political, in, in what they're trying to do. So the investment is much more subtle that a government makes in a big program that way. The private companies... They can't afford to do an exploratory kind of mission. Like I said, they, they, they don't have the, there's no payback for them. 
for that. So they can look for a market that they can have a return on their investment. The market today is lower orbit, first couple hundred miles. You can take passengers, well-heeled passengers, into space, something that 540 people ever have done in the whole world. It's still a big deal. People will pay, people who have money will pay to do that. So there's a market for that, but it's a small one. It's, it's not a global market. It's a very, very small market. The people who want to go to Mars, they're just going to go because they want to go. And, and I'm not sure that that's a sustainable program because the development cost of supporting people who go to Mars is astronomical. And where is the payback for that? No one can afford privately to pay that. Mm-hmm. So I don't know what the answer is. I, I think supporting government, uh, supporting government's development of new capability that then commercial industry picks up and uses is the way to go. It's not either or. It's a partnership and, and has always been that way. So if you could give NASA an unlimited budget, what do you think they should do with the money? What are the projects that they should be pursuing if, if money wasn't an option? Well, again, I am speaking just for me. I am mm-hmm. not speaking for anybody else. We are limited in our ability to do space exploration by the technology. The technology that we've been using since the 60s can get us about as far as Mars, but not any farther than that. And it's not just propulsion technology, it's power, electrical power. In order to do any long-duration mission, you need reliable, continuous power. Because a space station orbits with solar arrays at 250 miles above the Earth, it's got the sun, half the orbit, every 45 minutes. It's got sun for 45 minutes and then darkness and so on. So it has essentially sustainable, renewable energy. It's got the sun, it's got a solar cell. As long as the solar cells and their ability to track the sun is maintained, that mechanical part of it, there's electrical power. Now let's go to Mars. Mars is actually way farther away, and the sun not so strong. And solar power, maybe, but you're going to need way more efficient solar cells and a whole lot more of them. You would need another source of power, nuclear, for example, or some sort of fusion nuclear kind of, of, of uh, power source in order to do that. To get beyond Mars, to get beyond our solar system, you need a whole different propulsion system, a whole different one. And I, there, are, there are some technologies that will allow you to do that, ion propulsion, solar, electric kind of things, that none, the ion will get you there fairly fast, but it won't take you off the surface of the Earth. So any mission that we want to do beyond Earth's orbit requires a significant amount of mass in order to get that mass out of the gravity well off the earth the first hundred miles you need a you need something that will allow you to do that and we we haven't got that we've got we can build a big rocket that can take mass into orbit with the 60s technology that we've been using you know since then so i would i would put money and big brains into developing reliable power that is not solar into developing engines that will take us faster and farther that are safer and more reliable than what we are currently using. I would look at, and in all of that, you have to drag along the materials development that goes along with that. You have to develop the, um, the support facilities that go along with that, whatever it requires whatever it takes to to maintain and sustain that technology. So they all have like families of technologies that have to spin off from them to do that. But I would start with propulsion and power. And it seems like if we were able to accomplish that, a lot of the world's problems would be solved. I mean, maybe we wouldn't yeah. have, you know, the climate change problem looming. So, you know, if we had a completely different source of energy. You bet. 
You bet. When you develop something in order to enable a mission like a space mission to Mars, you develop new technology for that. It's got enormous payback on the Earth. The reason that we haven't done that is because we haven't had to do that. Mm -hmm. We haven't done anything other than new than we've done in the last 50 years. Some new materials, some new electronics, but pretty much the technology and power and propulsion is the same. Yeah. So I wanted to... um end our conversation with just your thoughts on how can we improve the public perception of NASA? Uh, It seems that simply by um, showing a human side, Commander Hadfield has done that brilliantly in the last couple of years. Um, But, you know, some people argue, well, it's because he's Canadian and he doesn't have, you know, he's, he doesn't have to answer to an organization like NASA, which is much more private in terms of, um, you know, what their astronauts do is, is that, accurate or is that do you think that that that's in the right direction to sort of that is not that is not accurate um he has to answer to the canadian space agency (laughs) um and who is a partner with nasa and 14 other space agencies around the world so he he is not rock star sent to space independent of of the nasa's around the world he is a very personable and a very uh, capable guy, and he took the opportunity to do that. The, not not all type A personalities come with a personality, I, I guess I should say. <laughs> and, and so not everybody is as is, is, is charming and as outgoing as Chris was. Um, but if you look at the different members on in orbit now, Karen Nyberg, who is the woman, the American woman that's on orbit now, she is doing similar things. Uh, Chris Cassidy had, who just landed, was an American that just landed. Uh, he did similar things. I don't think so much it's it's what the astronauts do. I think it's the ability to show it, to mm-hmm. to get it out there. Uh, and I have to say, NASA has never really done that well. So it's it's people have to be interested in it. And yeah. then they, you can you can dial into what's going on on space station real time anytime on the nasa.gov website. You can see live downlink from space anytime day or night. If if the crew's got the cameras on and they're awake, um, it's there. Hmm. But but who knows that, right? Who who knows that? So Chris made a big splash in doing lots of tweeting and in social media kinds of things. And uh, not everybody does that. Right. Well, hopefully this will sort of cue people in that, you know, you can get a lot of this information from NASA, um, you know, as you said, from the website and from other sources. And, and hopefully finally people will start to rethink this notion that um, space exploration is something that you can only do when your economy is humming. I, I think a lot of it is, and I hate to say this, press likes to do bad press, not good press. You know, people like to 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 tell and sadly hear a story of people that did bad things, not good things. Mm-hmm. So a happy good story, that's page six. A screw up, that's page one. And, and I don't know how to undo that because nobody really wants to hear good news. Right. Right. But, but space and what we do in space and how cool is that in space, that's all good news. It's all cool stuff. And nobody's interested in that. That is the sad part. Well, hopefully that will change very soon. Um, and I want to thank you very much for being on Inquiring Minds. Uh, and I hope that we get to follow the next few generations of space exploration with NASA um, with a much more of a connection to the people behind the scenes uh, and the people who are actually in the missions. Well, it's been great talking to you, and that's a hope that I have also. Amazing interview, Indre. I I love the part about solving global warming through space travel, and I just wish that collectively we had the kind of vision uh, that was expressed there. Yeah, I mean, I actually think that's a place where NASA has a real future, and I know that they're doing already a lot of work on understanding climate change, and of course, space, looking at looking at the Earth from space is one of the great ways in which they can measure the changes that have happened as a result of, of global warming or, or other effects. 
Totally. Well, great show. And I want to thank all of you for joining us for this opening episode of Inquiring Minds. Hopefully we didn't mess up too much. Hopefully you liked us. <laughs> and to find us online, visit climatedesk.org. You can also find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and on Facebook at slash Inquiring Minds Podcast. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac and sponsored by Climate Desk. And our music is from the award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. I'm your host, Chris Mooney. And I'm your other host, Indre Viscontis. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.